0: The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The word of the Lord.
1: From the book of the Revelation chapter 1, starting with verse 4, from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us by our, from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom, and priests to serve his God and Father, To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, and those who pierced Him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of Him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Let's stand together for the reading of our gospel. A reading from the gospel of St. John, chapter 20, starting with verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, "'Peace be with you.' After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side." The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord. Christ. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Christ is risen. It's risen indeed. Yes, He is risen indeed. Um, it is good to see you all. I. Uh, it's been a. Been a crazy uh, few weeks here. Um, Of course, two weeks ago, you guys know that Ashley and I were traveling. We were kind of just trying to get get away for a little bit and not really you know, even make a big deal about it. And yet it ended up being a big deal because we, we, our flights got canceled and we weren't able to get back. And and so I was really thankful. My friend, uh, Father Chad Jarnigan, was able to step in two Sundays ago on Palm Sunday. I was sitting there going on Palm Sunday to ask somebody at the last minute to cover. And I had exhausted every option that I could think of as far as getting back in time. And yet I knew that Chad's church meets at four o'clock in Franklin in the afternoons. And so I was like, he might have had a Palm Sunday sermon already written, and he's Anglican, so he'd be familiar with like a liturgy kind of thing. And I've heard it just went really well. So I'm really thankful that he stepped in. And then, of course, last Sunday was such a blessing, an awesome celebration. We celebrated the resurrection. We'll talk a little bit more about that today, but that's just a really special day. Um, Also, you are here today, and it is a special group of people that show up at church the Sunday after Easter Sunday. It is, you're a special group of people. I don't say that just to make you feel good about yourself, but it's just, it's just true. Um, it takes commitment. It means that you value something about the weekly rhythm of the life of faith. And uh, I'm not saying there's a place, a special place in heaven for you or anything, okay? Uh, we don't believe in works righteousness here. Uh, But the reason why it's impressive to me is it's really a countercultural thing to do anything in our culture every single week over and over again, (laughs) let alone in our culture today to come to church week after week after week. I read an article this week about how church membership has dropped sharply in the past two decades. So a steep, some of you read this article too, like a steep decline. And some of that is the phenomenon that we're experiencing with people leaving faith altogether, okay? So they call it the nuns. Uh, Whenever I talk about it, I have to be careful because it's not nuns. I'm not talking about like Roman Catholic nuns, N-U-N-S. I'm talking about the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who on a survey claim that they have no religion, or no affiliation, okay? The nuns is typically what they call them. So we've seen a rise in that, especially among millennials and younger generations who are marking that on surveys. But this is even stronger, even among Christians, the sharp decline in church membership and in kind of belonging to an organization. And then not just Christians, but it's true among mosques and synagogues that in the coming generation especially, but it's across all generations, we just don't belong to things like we tended to used to in the past. Okay, the sense of belonging and being actually part of something is not really there as much anymore. So, seventy-seven um, percent of people in the United States say that they are religious or they are part of a religion. Which our country—that is very high compared to a lot of parts of the world. Sometimes we tend to think everybody's out to get religious people, but like we're a huge majority of our of our country still, right? but 64% of people actually belong to a house of worship, which again is high, but if you look at 77% to 64%, that's a pretty, um, pretty big gap. Most Christians in church history would probably say, they're not sure it's possible <laughs> that you would be, say that you were Christian but not actually belong to a church. That'd just be a foreign concept. Like, what, what does that even mean? Our culture just doesn't do belonging very well and I think one of the reasons for that is most of our relationships and our connections and our culture have to do with one of two things. They're, they're either based on affinity. So I have relationships with people because we like the same things, okay? We like outdoor stuff together or we like to do this kind of thing or we're into a certain sports team or that kind of thing, a certain affinity or based on buying and selling, So if you look at, like, multi-level marketing communities, if you look at kind of memberships to the companies that we like or those kind of things, like, that's what a lot of our relationships are built on one of those things. Either we like the same things, we have a commonality in what we like, or we're part of a certain kind of consumer uh, group or something that we buy and sell. And because of that, because that's how most of our relationships tend to be built, many of us are engaging church in the same ways. We tend to think of it either as something affinity I find a church that likes some of the same things that I like, or we think of church as a commodity to be consumed. So we tend to think one of these two things. So you see this in our culture, like, okay, miss church? Well, no problem. Really what's important about church, a lot of people think, is the inspirational teaching. So if I can find a podcast with the best inspirational teacher, (laughs) then that's really church, right? Or the music, I like the music, but, Maybe I can find worship music. It's really easy to find on Spotify or something like that. Now, I'm not against these things. We were listening to uh, worship music on the way here. I love that. I listen to lots of sermon podcasts. I think they're wonderful. I think they're great. But we've started to equate that with belonging to a church as if they're the same thing. Um, and I think most Christians throughout church history would be shocked by that. <laughs> like, how do, that doesn't make sense. Like, it's not content. It's something else. Now, I'm, of course, I am not saying anyone should feel bad when I have to miss church, okay? Like, don't hear me say that. I hope you guys know me well enough to know I'm the first to remind you that there's no such thing as God up in heaven taking attendance of your, uh, of your church attendance, okay? So don't, please don't ever hear me say that. But what I'm saying is it is counter and cultural, counter-cultural to embrace that we are part of something, that there's something that we usually do, that there's something that we belong to. Like, that's odd, that's a strange thing. You're odd people. I'm sorry, that, I was supposed to be a joke, um, but you are. Um, <laughs> but church is something we belong to. It's not just an event, but it's an orientation. It's a way of life. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Okay. We're a small enough group here, so I hope if you go no, that makes no sense. You can say that today. That's really okay. Um, the event of last Sunday was important. Events matter. They are important. Uh, we mark that day. We mark the day that we celebrate resurrection, Easter Sunday, and we mark that well. But it's also the we get to celebrate today and for the next fifty days, especially that that celebration is not over. Historically, the season of Easter is a fifty-day celebration. Okay, so we celebrate in this season. It's a season of fast or feasting and parties. Uh, I heard somebody say this week, "What did you give up for Lent?" Well, a good way to celebrate Easter is to just have twice as much of that this season, (laughs) okay? Um, You don't have to do that. Maybe that's not wise. But but this season of feasting and parties, and, and our culture tends to think about single events really well. We tend to do that really well. But we struggle with this idea of creating new seasons and new rhythms that form us. This season, I'm excited because we will most likely have at least one new baby born in our community. Um, eventually there will be three that are, are being expected right now. But, um, but, but this season we'll have at least one and we'll have, our church will celebrate five years of existence this, this season, I'm excited about that. It's a season of feasting, it's a season of celebration for us, it's joy. But even these events are part of a greater rhythm of living as a Christian. We live as people of faith, as Christians, in celebration, in pain, and then sometimes in just the normal, everyday stuff of life. Sometimes life, as you know, is not celebration or pain. It's just stuff. <laughs> it's just life. And yet we live Christianly that way, too. In our gospel text today, well, let me say something about the scripture readings. First of all, a few of you pointed out when we were preparing today that the um, Our Old Testament reading is actually from the book of Acts, which is in the New Testament. Good job for recognizing that. Um, Acts is in the New Testament. Well, during Easter, what we do is instead of the Old Testament text, we walk through the book of Acts, through parts of the book of Acts. And part of that is we're seeing the birth of the church in the Easter season. And so that's kind of what's going on uh, there. But in our gospel text today, we see the disciples huddled together after Jesus died on the cross. And then we see in our story in John 20, the resurrection has happened, just like we looked at last Sunday. Jesus appeared to Mary, but his disciples don't know that yet, okay? So we see the disciples here grieving. They've lost Jesus. They don't know what to do. He's died on a cross They've not returned to their native Galilee, where most of them were from, but instead, they're still in Jerusalem, where Jesus died. They're huddled together, and they're probably, it says, the text says, they're in fear of what the Jewish leaders might do to them. So they killed our leader, but now they might come after us. So they're scared. They're afraid. They've been associated with Jesus. They've given their livelihood to him, and now he's dead. And then something really odd happens. Jesus enters the room, but it says the doors are locked, Jesus enters the room, but the doors are locked. So John is wanting us to see that um, that's not really possible, right? Like that's a hard thing to do. (laughs) So he shows up. Now, first of all, it's important that we say something about this idea of resurrection. Like where did it even come from? Was it even part of the Jewish story? The Jewish people believed in resurrection from the dead. At least most of them did. They believed that all of God's people would one day, at the end of history, all of God's people would be raised from the dead. So there would be a future resurrection. We still affirm that today, that all of God's people one day will be raised from the dead. The Jewish faith is embodied. It wasn't like the Greeks. The Greeks believed primarily in this idea of a disembodied soul. Okay, so a person's body is just their shell, and then their soul kind of goes somewhere else. Okay? But the Jewish people actually believe, no, being human actually means you have a body. So in order for God to restore humanity, it's not just restoring our souls. It's actually bodies that will be restored and will be resurrected. So the Jewish people believed in resurrection. But what they didn't expect was for one dude, one guy, to be resurrected in the middle of time ahead of everybody else. So they expected that one day there'd be this future resurrection where everybody would be raised from the dead, but what they didn't expect is way before all of that, one guy would be raised from the dead, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. So what we see here is that the resurrection of Jesus begins the process of God making the world right, of new creation. His resurrection is what everything hinges upon. Paul actually says in one of his letters that Jesus' resurrection is And Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The the idea of first fruit is an agricultural term for like the first batch of of harvest that promises that more is to come, okay? So it's like the beginning of that. So what the heck is a resurrected body, all right? Jesus has been, has raised from the dead and obviously he's got this body now, he's physical, but what, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, there's a lot of speculation about this, and there's a lot that we don't know. But there are some things that um, reveal themselves somehow here in in this story and in other stories. That somehow God takes the stuff of the old body, the dust that the body is made from, and somehow creates something new out of it. Again, it's a mystery. It's hard to explain. But somehow the body now, this resurrected body... Christ's resurrected body and our future resurrected body has a new operating system. Okay, maybe that's one good way to think of it. It has a new OS that's running. It has a new engine. as another way to think about it. It's empowered by God's spirit, not just life as it was before, even though that's beautiful and that's good, the human life that's there, the life force, but it's now empowered by God's spirit in a different way. And the resurrection of Jesus is like a prototype for this new body. The best way to catch a glimpse of what our future resurrected body might look like is in these stories. And a few things we might be able to say from Jesus's resurrected body in this story. First of all, a resurrected body is not non-physical. I know that's a double negative there, but it's not non-physical. It's very real. So Jesus, after he's risen from the dead, he eats fish. That's not the kind of thing you'd expect of like a ghost, right? Or a spirit or something. Like he eats fish. It's a physical, real body. He can break bread, actual, real bread. Also, he has scars of the previous life on his hands and in his side. It's not this detached, otherworldly Jesus kind of floating around ghostly kind of thing. No, Jesus, this is a physical resurrected body. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is it's differently physical, right? So he appears through a locked door. That's not something we can do right now, right? Maybe you can. I I can't do that, right? (laughs) Get through a door that's locked. He appears out of nowhere. There's something different. There's something transcendent about the body of Jesus. Somehow Jesus belongs to our world and another world at the same time. The resurrected body is physical, but it is differently physical. Well, why does that matter? Okay, fine, great, good trivia. Why does that matter? Well, physicality matters. Real life matters. God created a good world and he's not going to give up on it. He's going to restore it, resurrect it. He will see it through. Our physical world now is broken because of sin, but God will make it new again. And I think that's so important because it helps us to see our physical world as something beautiful and ripe for healing, not something that just has to be done away with or transcended away from, okay? Many of the Greek philosophers believed that the physical body was something that you needed to get rid of eventually, that it was bad, that it was awful. In fact, a lot of that has influenced a lot of our modern day Christianity, this idea that physicality is bad and we need to shed it. And this led the Greek philosophers to hopelessness. In the case of Socrates, it actually led him to suicide. The death was something that was necessary in order to shed the body, this evil existence. The Christian hope is in a world made right, in God's physical world made new again. I know we're going really deep waters with this right now, but But some of this thought, this kind of Greek philosopher thought, it's like dualism and like the physical's bad and the spirit is kind of good and we need to transcend it, has really influenced us and has made us kind of think about our physical world and even our bodies and our everyday life in a way that I don't think is good. It pales. So then Jesus offers peace to the disciples. He says, peace be with you. This is a common greeting in Middle Eastern countries. Peace be with you. So on the surface, we just go, he's just greeting them. But of course, there's something deeper here. In John's gospel, on numerous occasions, Jesus had promised peace. But this is peace. There's something in this peace. This peace is a peace that sends. Jesus sends the disciples. There's a responsibility that's placed on the disciples when they receive this peace by Jesus. In the Bible, peace is not just like calmness. Sometimes we just say, oh, I just need peace. I had some times with Lucy this weekend where I was like, Lucy, I need you just to stop talking. I love your talking and I love it when you're telling me all about, but right now I just need some peace. But this is more than that. This isn't just, I need space or I need quiet, right? Peace is something that comes with responsibility, a responsibility for wholeness and healing. And they're told to receive the Holy Spirit, Often when we think about the Christian story, we think about um, the Holy Spirit as coming in Acts, in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit pours out on all flesh. But it's important for us to see the Holy Spirit has been with Jesus the whole time. So he, he says, receive the Holy Spirit to his disciples. Throughout John's gospel, he's emphasized the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it says he breathes on them. The words spirit and breath are really similar words here okay, in the Greek. There is so much going on in this passage. So like, it's really odd when you, when you read, he breathed on the disciples. Like, is this just this uncomfortable moment where one guy just breathes on the face of a bunch of people? Like, is Jesus the ultimate close talker? No, like he, he's breathing on them, but this is a sense of the breath of God, John believes that Jesus is God. As Jesus breathes on them, it is the breath of God. It is the breath of new creation. It is the spirit at work in them in sending them. In fact, if we look at how the the apostles describe Jesus um, or the apostle John describes Jesus, John talks about Jesus in ways that are really a lot higher and deeper than even all the other gospel writers. What do you mean by that? what do I mean by that? Well, John seems to really point us to the fact that Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah even though he is that, but he is actually God in the flesh. John does that way more than even all the other gospel writers. It's called a high Christology. He has a very high view of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the breath of God. In Genesis 2, human beings are created by dust and the breath of God. Jesus breathes life into the disciples and says, receive the Spirit. They are sent. They are sent not just to preach and not just to talk. And they are sent not just to be part of the Spirit Club or this club that's set apart and better than everybody else. They are sent on mission of forgiveness and of healing and of restoration they embody forgiveness. And that's why Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of anyone, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think about like, okay, there's been some times in my life when I've been at my worst that I've not forgiven certain people. (laughs) Does that mean they're not forgiven? And what about people who haven't forgiven me? Does that mean I'm not forgiven? What does that even mean? Well, I don't think the intention is that when we fail to forgive, that God punishes those people because it's just up to to our selfish whims. I don't think that's what he's saying here. There are times when we as Christians go against our mission. We go against the breath of God and we don't offer forgiveness. But instead, what I think this means is the church, the people of God, are to be a sacrament of forgiveness in the world. That sometimes we fail to do this, but we are called to live forgiveness. Can you imagine what the world would be like whenever people thought of Christians, they thought of forgiveness? What do people think of when they think of Christians now? Uh, I don't want to even maybe go there, but, but like what if every time somebody heard about Christians, they went, oh, those are those people that just love and forgive everybody, <laughs> they accept them and they heal them and they restore them. Like, wow, can you imagine what the world would be like? God is always faithful to forgive anyone who comes to him. And we're not to take that lightly. We carry forgiveness. We live as forgiveness people. I have this opportunity as a pastor. A lot of times when I tell people that I'm a pastor, I, the other day, I don't know why all these happen in the coffee shop, probably because I go to the coffee shop a lot. But, but uh, one of the baristas at the coffee shop, when I was there, um, she saw me in the collar. And I walked in, and she knows my name because I go there a lot. And she said, Preston, I didn't know you were a clergyman. And I said, yeah, I am. And she said, pray for us. We're a bunch of sinners here. <laughs> I, said, I said, you know, um, I said, I, I am too. I'm with you. And I'll pray for all of us. And And it kind of opens the door. There's a lot of times for people to begin to go, gosh, I haven't been in church in a long time. Or yeah, I I really, I've done a lot of things that I don't think people would really accept me and love me because of what I've done. And it gives me the opportunity to step in there and go, you know what, you are loved just as you are, right in that place that you are today. And everything that you've done, I hope you know that God's posture towards you is always love." Like what an opportunity we have in the world to carry that and to be to carry that responsibility of forgiveness. There was one disciple who was not with them when Jesus walked through the locked door the first time. It's Thomas, and he says, He, he doesn't believe just their testimony, he wants proof. Okay, he says, I'm not going to believe le- until I see the, sc- the scars, and honestly with something as like out there as resurrection from the dead, wouldn't most of us want this? Like, wouldn't most of us go, okay, I've heard your story, but can I see it, please? Because this seems really strange to me. There are such things as mass delusions, as hysteria. Like, we disparage Thomas a lot for not believing the first time, but we act as if Jesus is like, okay, fine, Thomas. I guess if you really need this proof, check this out, you know, but but that's not really what's going on here. Like Thomas is just genuinely seeking truth and Jesus never disparages Thomas. Notice that. Jesus shows Thomas what he needs to see. And he says, you believe because you see. And that doesn't seem to be a bad thing. That's a good thing. However, he does say there will be some people who won't be able to touch the scars. There will be people who won't see Jesus eat fish or break bread. And yet he says, there's a blessing for them. That would be us, right? There's a blessing for us in that. There are those like us who are dependent on the story of the apostles. That's what we have to trust in. We are a people of a story. And for us, there is blessing. There is hope. He meets us there. There's nothing wrong with faith that comes from sight. There's nothing wrong with that. We often see glimpses of resurrection life all around us and it leads us to faith. Seeing a miracle and being drawn to deeper faith is a beautiful thing, but there will be times when we can't see, where life feels dark. And when we believe even without seeing, there's a grace that meets us there. There's also something about the proof that Thomas asks for and the proof that Jesus provides. He asked to see the scars Somehow scars last into resurrection life. It could just have been that Jesus' new resurrection body was just this plastic thing that was nice and shiny and perfect and there was no signs of previous suffering, but that's not kind of how it works for some reason. Why do scars last? Well, our story doesn't cease to be the story of self-giving love after resurrection, of dying to self after resurrection. Our story is always about the scars. It's always about the dying. It's always about God's great self-sacrificial love for us. The scars don't magically disappear as if it never happened. The scars remind us this is the same God who died for us. The scars matter in our story. Now, I want to say this here. I think you guys know this about me by now, but I believe in a physical resurrection. I believe that with all my heart. I believe in a resurrected body, and I believe in the anticipation of resurrection for all of us to come, physical, real resurrection. Um, I also believe this on faith. I've made a choice based on the testimony, the story of the apostles. But it's not just the story of the apostles, it's the story of my family and my friends and my community. It's a story that continues to be told and I put my faith and my trust in that. Often there's all kinds of debates surrounding the physical resurrection of Jesus. And a lot of them revolve around two things, history and science. So you hear a lot of these debates, usually around Easter time, there's different like, specials that come on TV, and there's different Time magazine and Newsweek and all these kind of things, do these stories about, okay, what, what do we believe about, like, what is physical resurrection? Is that possible? Usually the answer from the scientific community was, no, it's not, so end of <laughs> end of story, right? Um, but if we only argue the resurrection through the lens of science, it won't get us anywhere. If we're just trying to look for that magic bullet that's like that scientific proof of resurrection, that's not going to get us anywhere. The skeptic's response is that could never happen. And the reason why is we've never seen a dead person rise again. We've never used the scientific method and seen that this is observable, measurable, and repeatable. We never have. So that's the skeptic's response. The problem is that science inherently deals with what is repeatable, okay? Science is, there is a scientific method that what is observable, then measurable, and then can be repeated over and over again. That is science. History is something different. History deals with what is not repeatable. What do I mean by that? So if George Washington crosses the Potomac River a second time, it's not the same event again. It's a second event. So history is what's not repeatable. It's something that just happens again for the first time. So science and history are dealing with two different kinds of things. So when when someone says a thing like resurrection from the dead doesn't happen, they're actually using analogy. Really, they're saying things like this, we've never seen them happen. They don't normally happen. And we can't see a repeat of that happening in any way that we can measure. Okay, that's what they're saying. And this kind of thinking is wonderful for science. Let me say that. We want that. <laughs> we want That's right. We've got a scientist in our midst, and we, are, we celebrate science. That's how we want scientists to think. I want them to tell us what can be repeated and what occurs according to experiments. We want that. That means a lot for us in medicine and technology. This is good. And then there's some things that scientific experiments can't tell me. I don't want a scientist to tell me what kind of music I should like. It's just a different category. I know they can try, but but it's a different thing. I don't want a scientist to tell me how to fall in love using what is observable, measurable, and repeatable, right? That's a different thing, isn't it? But both of these things are very real things, but they fall outside the scope of scientific experimentation. But just because something seems unscientific doesn't mean it's not historical. There are many strange historical things that cannot be explained and are deemed scientifically impossible, and yet they've occurred. It's also important to say that the resurrection doesn't exclude science, okay? So don't hear me saying this. Don't hear me saying, well... The resurrection of Jesus wasn't really like scientific, like it wasn't really physical. It was something kind of outside of that. We don't live in some kind of spiritual world that's separate from scientific natural world. There are just limits to what science can do. And also science is dynamic. It's changing. There are things that are being discovered all over the, to- all over the place. And the world is dynamic. The world is changing. There's an author named uh, Phyllis Tickle and uh, she one time was speaking to a group of people and it was a group of clergy. And she knew that some of them believed in a physical resurrection and some of them didn't. And she was speaking and she said, you know, some of you are here and you believe in this and you don't believe and it's okay and take it by faith and blah, blah, blah. And then she had a 10-year-old boy come up to her afterwards and said, Mrs. Tickle, I believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. And she said, and she said oh, that's wonderful. That's, that's great. And, and why do you believe in that? She said, and the the little boy said, it's just too beautiful not to be true. Just too beautiful not to be true. Sometimes there are things in life that we go, that is just too right. It's just too beautiful not to be true. What happens with Thomas is he does a science experiment. He had the opportunity that we may not have to actually do an experiment on Jesus's body." And and he has a certain paradigm going in. He does the experiment and his paradigm, his hypothesis changes. He performs the experiment and he goes, before I thought things like this didn't happen. Now I know they do happen and I have to create a new paradigm. The resurrection is the beginning of a new paradigm, the paradigm of new creation. It seems as if things in the world are not static, they are dynamic. Often when we find discoveries about our world that are different than we've seen before, we have to then change our paradigm. Things change, things mutate, the world changes. As a Christian, I affirm a God who created and a God who still creates. This means that new creation is not always bound by the previous restrictions of old creation. The resurrection begins, this ultimate new creation, the restoring of the world Now, the historical evidence for the resurrection is strong. And some of you may have seen this and studied this before. The changed life of the disciples, I still think, is the best um, historical evidence that we have of resurrection. The fact that there was um, no ceremonial tomb for Jesus and he was a significant figure. Um, The fact that there was no body that was ever found. But resurrection, just like it can't be grasped by science, it can't just be grasped by the study of history either. History, like science, also has limits. It's kind of like using a candle when the sun has risen. I used to, when I was in middle school, I used to read some of those books, The Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, if any of you ever heard that, and Lee Strobel's books and you know, about some of these kind of historical evidence. And I think the strength of those books is not to prove to somebody who doesn't believe in resurrection— but it's to help kind of strengthen those who already have chosen to have faith in the resurrection, okay? The historical evidence can show us that the room has been disturbed, that things are out of place, that they're different. There's something that our old paradigm doesn't allow for. But when we open the curtains of faith, when we take a risk, when we take the leap of faith, we don't need candles anymore. We don't need flashlights anymore we see the sun. We mentioned that John has this highest expression of Jesus out of any of the gospel writers. This doesn't mean that the other gospel writers didn't believe that Jesus was God. They just didn't express it that way. John's the only one who specifically says Jesus is God. And many people think the reason for that is because it took the disciples a little while to kind of piece everything together. They were telling their stories. They wrote these gospels. They passed down their stories. But but it took them a while to kind of piece together that the Jewish Messiah was also God in the flesh. In the moments following the resurrection accounts, it began to make sense. Jesus is the one we've hoped for, that Israel's hoped for. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that we've looked for. But the disciples didn't expect the Messiah, the one they hoped for, to also be Yahweh in the flesh. They also didn't necessarily believe that the hoped-for Messiah would rise from the dead in this way. And actually, at the time, there were a lot of so-called Messiahs. And when your Messiah died, when the one you put your hope in for the redemption of Israel, for um, Israel's liberation, when that guy died, it was time for you to find a new Messiah. It was over. So often what would happen is when the guy you put your hope in died, you would go to that guy's brother and say, well, maybe if he was, wasn't really all there, then we gotta go find his brother and put our hope in him and he's the Messiah. Well, that's why it's so powerful that Jesus's brother James became one of the first pastors and leaders of the early church because he said, no, I'm not the Messiah. He is the Messiah, the one who died and rose again. So after one comes to grips with the fact Jesus is the Messiah, let me just say it this way. There are like kind of three levels that we see in Scripture. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the hoped-for one, the one to liberate Israel. But then there's like another step that you kind of have to take. Jesus is the Messiah, but Jesus is Lord is the next step. That he actually runs the world, that he's the Lord over everything. Okay, so that's a big step. So Messiah to Lord. Well, then there's a third step that John takes that's really powerful. Not only is he Messiah, not only is he the ruler of the world and Lord of lords, but he's actually God in the flesh, the historic God of Israel with us in the flesh. That was the final leap of all leaps, and that's what Thomas does. He says, after he touches the scars, he says, my Lord and my God. He makes that final leap leap. John's gospel was the last one that was written. And perhaps the purpose of this gospel, as we've seen over and over again, is to say, Jesus is not just the Messiah. He's not just Lord, but he's actually the one true God in the flesh. The first sentence of John's gospel is, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And here, the closing frame of John's gospel, the greatest skeptic, not only proclaims Jesus as Lord, but as God. In the words of T.S. Eliot, we have arrived at the place where we started to discover that now we know it for the first time. Jesus is God at the beginning of John's gospel. And here in the mouth of the skeptic, he is God in the flesh. It's often the greatest skeptics who become the most convinced. Those who are following hard after questioning also find that they are following hard after truth. Thomas brings history and faith together. He knows as a follower of Yahweh, what God has done in the past. And he knows now what has been brought together in Jesus. And he chooses to reorder his existence around that reality. So for us today, where are you on your journey? Some of us spend our lives looking for proof. God, show me that you're real. Show me that you have my life in your hands. Show me that your story is the right story so that I can follow it. And this isn't just in moments of faith and doubt because some of us go, yeah, the whole history and science thing, I don't really step into that. But this is actually a question that we ask every time we face temptation. We ask this question, is this really the story I'm supposed to follow or is there a different one? Every time we wrestle with putting our spouse or neighbor or enemy's needs above our own, we say, can I really trust this story? Sometimes we see the proof we need. Sometimes it may seem obscure. Many of us can sit here as Christians and we say, I accept that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, that he fulfilled the prophecy but is he Lord? Can I reorder my life around him? Can I let him lead my life? Is he really the king of my life? But then finally, the question is, are we willing to make the final leap that he is God, that he is the one who created us, the one who gives us life, who sustains us, and he's the God of the scars, the God who at his core is self-giving love, His love for you is at the core of his being, and you can trust that. Notice that Jesus gives them two profound gifts. We're closing here. He shows them his scars, and he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. Shows them the scars, breathes on him the Holy Spirit. If we follow in the way of Jesus, the church will be guided by these two elements. We will be people of the scars, and that means that we will suffer. We will go through difficult times. Faith will not always make sense. We will feel like we're forsaken. But we will also experience the work of the Holy Spirit. We will see pieces of heaven breaking through all around us. And we will know forgiveness and we will share in forgiveness. The church will inevitably be marked by these two realities, scars and spirit. May we be blessed in our seeing and blessed in our not seeing. May we have the grace to know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering. Amen.